Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Tarot, and today on the podcast, we have Kirsten Powers as our guest to talk about her new book, Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. Kirsten is a New York Times bestselling author, a senior political analyst for CNN, and a columnist for USA Today. And this book offers a path to navigate the toxic division in our culture without compromising our convictions and our emotional well-being. Well, Kirsten, everyone is saying it because it's true. Our nation is fractured into factions and politics cuts us in half and religion cuts out some and makes others a cut above. Wearing masks turns some into beastly behaviors, which is one of the problems. We tend to gravitate toward extremes. Facebook knows it, Twitter knows it, and that's why the bots under Silicon Valley are shaping our culture. Social Dilemma made it clear for those who watched it. So we need voices of reason. We need political analysts and religion columnists who neither paper over our differences nor turn to stridency for the numbers, but who can find the issue itself and talk about it intelligently and carry on a discourse that doesn't shame or threaten the opposing side, but shows respect and disagreement. We also need people who will publicly confess, apologize, repent, repair, reconcile, and restore what they were complicit in cracking into factions. What we need is an old-fashioned Christian idea called grace. And we now have all of this in your new book, and we're so excited to welcome you to the Kingdom Roots podcast today. And it is more than an honor for us to be able to host you today, Kirsten. So welcome. Thank you. It's such an honor for me to be here. Well, Kirsten, this book, I think is, I really think it's an amazing book. And as I read it, I think, well, every chapter can't be this good. And and it just kept going. And, and every chapter has that distinctive quality, like you could give it as a talk somewhere. And at the same time, you were probing deep Divisions in American society and how how you as a uh, a public face uh, and public commentator, not commentator, analyst and <laughs> columnist are responding to these situations. So I would I'm just thrilled you're with us. And I'd like to ask you a couple questions about this fantastic new book. So here it is. Um, For me, I would say this, no idea or doctrine in Christianity is more emphatic than grace, even if it has at times been a punching bag between theologians. Grace should also be the instinctive Christian ethic, especially for those who are our enemies. Mm -hmm. And I think your book is the finest I know of integrating the ethic of grace to me, (laughs) the ethic of grace with politics and our public discourse. I think it's a model for others to work out for other virtues. I mean, we could talk about love and peace, mm-hmm. and and this. I think your book could be a model for that. We often uh, begin by asking our authors how they came to write their book, but for you, that's the book itself. I mean, that's, that's what it is. So I want to ask, ask you a question that I wonder, it's a little bit more personal, 
I'm a blogger, and it's not always easy to come up with topics to write about. So I let books that I read give me tips. But you write columns at the national level about hot topics. In fact, I think it can be said that at times you make some topics hotter than they are. So my question is, how do you come up with topics to write about? And the follow-up is, how long does it take you to write a typical column? <laughs> well, first, I just want to really reiterate, Scott, how much this means to me and everything that you have said. And I mean, obviously, you are a world-renowned scholar and wonderful human being on top of it. So to have you say this about my book is just honestly more than I could have hoped for. Uh, so, um, well, I mean it, just, it. it really means so much to me, um, that how do I figure out what my columns are? So, it, it, so I do figure them out because so, some people think that you're, it's dictated to you by your boss or something. And it's not actually, I wish it was because it, it would be much easier. <laughs> um, you know, occasionally they'll come to me and say, do you want to write on this or that? And I would say most of the time I say no, cause it's usually not something that, that I'm, feel moved by. So I write about what moves me and I write about what, um, I try to also think about what other people are thinking and wondering about. So what are they looking at and thinking, you know, what's not being said like that? That's always my question. What's not being represented here? Um, you know, one of my columns, the column that probably went the most viral of anything I ever wrote was when I had spoken about having suicidal ideation. Um, and, um, you know, I had over a million page views and it was, you know, best read, most read for a week or something on, on USA Today. And the way that came about was I, uh, I had a column due and my editor said, why don't you do something on this just happened with Anthony Bourdain. Um, this was before Kate Spade had taken her life. And so I thought, I don't really have anything to add to this. I don't think I'm able to come up with anything. But I spoke to my fiance's brother, who happens to be one of the country's leading experts on suicide, suicide prevention. And I said, what's not getting covered? Because it was, if we remember, right, it was, you know, round the clock coverage about Anthony Bourdain's death. And I said, what? And then Kate Spade had just happened. And I said, what's not being covered? And he said, well, what's not being covered is that we always, when we talk about suicide, we only talk about the people who actually take their lives. We don't talk about all the other people who contemplated it or maybe even attempted it and survived and regretted it. And I said, well, I had an experience like that. And he said, well, that's what people need to hear. And so I was like, oh, you know, do I really want to, I don't, you know, and it was one of the first times that I think I really integrated a personal experience into a column. And he said, that's what people need to hear. They need to know because what happens is they look at an Anthony Bourdain or Kate Spade and they say, they can't make it. How can I make it? And they need to hear people saying, I was there. I've been there. I have hit rock bottom. I know what it's like. And I'm so glad I didn't do it. So I try to think about it that way. I try to think about, you know, what what isn't being said. You know, you write in the in the uh, cracks and crevices of the most volatile 
area of American life right now. And it's worse. It's worse than the last, I don't know. I don't know how someone measures these things, but mm-hmm. it's really difficult. People, in, you know, and churches are just fighting over stuff. And you think, what is going on in our society right now? And so um, you get everything you write is, what is it, quadruply vulnerable to mm-hmm. attack by people in different oh, ways. Yeah. I mean, I, just, I, I always get attacked. Like, there's just, it's, I mean, I'll get attacked about grace. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't how, how can you be gracious toward, toward so-and-so? Um, and so to me, this is, this is to me the, um, it's something that's not being said. And it's something that is redemptive for American culture and society and politics is let's think of a different way of talking to one another. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I just think, I just think it's great. So, all right. Now in your book, uh, and there are all these different chapters in the book, and they're not, it's not a simple story of following you through, but it is integrated into your own life. I mean, you talk about the suicide ideation you had. And, you know, there's, I told my wife, she's a psychologist. I said, Chris, this book is really moving and vulnerable at, at places. And I'm sitting here thinking she's writing about politics in New York City. This is this is uh, vulnerable at the highest level. But you have what I think is a very important chapter on binary and dualistic thinking. Mm-hmm. Tell us what that is, how we get into it. Let's say even how you got into it and how we can learn to avoid it, because I'd like to know it's hard. It's really hard. And it's I uh, I don't think if I had in- had learned about that, I would have even been able to get to the point where the idea of grace could have actually come into the situation. Wow. So that wow. actually sort of led me there in a way. And and that was when I encountered Richard Rohr, um, who talks about this a lot. And I, I think it was Falling Upward was maybe the book that I first read. I read all his books like, you know, boom, boom, boom. And I, and I went and I did a a little retreat with him. And it just, I, I was like, wow, this is kind of the problem. This is such a major problem in our country that, that everything is sort of sorted into these good and bad baskets or all or nothing. Um, our, our political system is completely binary. Unlike, you know, in other, in other countries where you might have, you know, many different, uh, uh, parties to, uh, that, that more accurately represent what you believe, right? A parliamentary system, for example. And ours really is just this or that. And, you know, you can call yourself an independent, but 90% of independents always vote with the same party. So, um, and so that's the framework for all of the conversations that we have. It's just, it's, there's no room for nuance. And, and so, that started me just the awareness is really important. So I think just people becoming aware of it is really can start to shift. You start to notice it happening. Understanding how our brains have a binary bias used to be something that was meant to keep us safe. Uh, it's really great if a tiger is running at you to make a really quick decision about what you need to do, or maybe another group of people that you that you have to assess your life is in danger. It's not very good when it comes to analyzing 
complex issues and people, you know, and those kinds of things. Like we're not, it's not meant for that, but that's what we use it for. Um, and that I think that, um, and we see it in religion, you know, it's the all in or all out thing. It's, there's no kind of room for mystery for a lot of people. And they're, they're, and I'm going to say for me either, I mean, this is, you know, I talk about my journey in there, my journey for my faith. And uh, of uh, when I'm talking about people doing this, I'm talking about me too, just to be yeah, clear. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so, and then I learned that, um, that, that as much as we're all kind of prone to this kind of thinking, I was extra prone to it. And I have that whole chapter on tra trauma. And I don't know if you guys are Enneagram people or not, but I learned I was an Enneagram eight, which is the challenger. And the idea of the Enneagram is that we create personalities in response to our trauma. And so my way of keeping myself safe, extra safe, was to sort everybody in good and bad baskets and demonize anybody who disagreed with me. Now, I may not have said it out loud, but it was all happening in my head. So, you know, I had to really work at starting to unpack that. And just by starting to work on it, I had a lot more work to do. That's where I think the grace was able to kind of just come in through the crack. You know, it just, there was like an opening and I had that moment where I hit the wall and I just said, my behavior, my thoughts are not aligned with what I say I believe. And, uh, and, and then I had this intuition that grace was the solution to the problem. There was just an intuition and mm -hmm. it, it ended up being right. But I, I would say to people who are Christians, which I assume most of the people listening to you are, is to ask yourself, is my behavior aligned with what I say I believe? I say I'm a Christian. I say I believe in loving my enemies. I say I believe in loving my neighbor. Do I love my enemies? I didn't. I didn't even want to. So <laughs> you, you say know, some I mean, pretty. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, this that is for some other time. Like that is not for now. And then I had to sit there and think about it because I am an analytical person. I'm an analyst for a living. And I was like, well, I mean, Jesus was dealing with some pretty heavy things. <laughs> um, he was being persecuted and killed. Um, and he was still saying this. Uh, his Most of his followers also were being persecuted. And a lot of them were killed also for their faith. And they were saying this. Like, am I really saying that what I'm dealing with is harder? Like, and, and then I, the reality, it just became very clear to me that I had that this time is exactly what this is for, right? That's the point. The idea of grace, the idea of loving your enemies, all of those ideas, this is the time. And before this, I was able to kind of go along and be like, look at me. I'm just so good. I mean, I can get along with a Republican and I can, you know, I'm, I, I'm not judging people and I'm not doing any of these things. And it's like, but this is when the rubber hit the road. And, and I had to say, like, who am I? What do I believe? Who do I want to be? And I didn't want to be what I was. I was like, I'm, I want to be, I want to be a grown up. I want to act like a grown person. And I'm sorry, but a lot of us have not been acting like grown people, you know, especially on social media. And, um, and, and I want to, I want my values to be reflected in my behavior and in my thoughts, um, because most of my problems honestly were 
this. <laughs> um, you know, most people didn't know what I was thinking of them. <laughs> has your has your editor at the USA Today noticed, uh, let's say, a tone change? Or have you you've probably noticed? I've noticed it. I um I haven't written a lot of columns because I was working so hard on the book. So I really I've only wrote you know a handful of columns during that time. But but other people have noticed it. You know they have noticed that there's something different in the way that I'm approaching things. Um, but I can I can say more for the people who know me. They would tell you. Um, you could ask Jonathan Merritt. I know you're friends with Jonathan Merritt. Yeah. I am a completely different person. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, and I have, and so many of my friends are like, what I need you to like teach me whatever it was because you are like a completely different person. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, it just radically changed me. This book just radically changed me. The, um, the, the columnists, political analysts almost trade in, uh, strong, hard, extreme edges of points of view. And, and it is, we read, you know, and, and I've, I've written to you before. I've watched you on TV. I've read your columns and I said, it was so balanced and reasonable. We need more people like this. You know, I, that's what I've, I've noticed about you over the years, but um, I'm just excited about what grace as a, a Christian ethic is going to do to your political uh, analytics and to your columns. I think it's, I think it's a great opportunity for, for all of us uh, to see a model of what's going on. Okay. Grace to imitate some famous words of C.S. Lewis and everybody reads C.S. Lewis. Grace is a great idea until you have to show it to your enemy. You said this about forgiveness. Forgiveness yeah. is such a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. Yeah. Um, until it's, you know, um, somebody of the opposite political party. Yes. One of the great tensions in your book, and I, and I wrote you about this one because I did not know what was going on inside me, is between the limits of grace. I mean, you talk about the limits of grace and the need to extend grace. How do we square these two approaches? One seemingly putting a limit on grace and the other perhaps not. And I, I and I will say this, I think you're right, but I want I want some guidance. Well, I think it's yeah, it is a hard thing to summarize. But I do think that we can take advantage of people's grace. And so you can push people too far and then they will at some point react in a way that someone might say, well, they're not being very graceful. They're not offering me grace. Or why aren't they offering that person grace? And it's like, because they've been offering grace and you've just taken advantage of it. And, um, and now they've been pushed too far. And so my biggest advice to people is, don't really concern yourself with whether other people are offering grace. Concern yourself with whether you're offering grace, because that's really the only thing that you have control over. And 
And we should just say that, you know, when I talk about grace, a lot of people have an idea. And I think it's this kind of spiritual bypassing, honestly, kind of idea. Like it's kind of some magical thing that makes you just never get mad about anything. And you're just always like so sweet. And like you're kind of a doormat if we're being honest, right? And that's that's not what it is. It's a very muscular idea, actually. It's it's the hardest thing I've ever done. It's it takes so much more strength to to stop and say, stop, this person, this is a person that we're talking about here and try to see the whole humanity in them, try to see God in them, recognize they're doing the best they can with what they have. Like that is, that is a hard thing to do when you're starting to do it. I have to say it gets, it's gotten easier for me. Um, but it's a very hard thing. You know, what's really easy demonizing people really easy. Like it takes no effort whatsoever. So the idea that that's strength, you know, when people are mocking people or, you know, making fun of them or, you know, putting them down or demonizing them or dehumanizing them, that somehow that's strength. It's like, that is the like weakest thing you could possibly do. It's just, it's so easy. It's like breathing. Um, to actually take the time to, um, to, to foster a practice of grace. I call it a practice because it is not something that you can just snap your fingers and do. It's something that really takes time. And so I see a lot of times in our culture, and I have a couple of chapters on it, which I think what you're alluding to, is that a lot of time we see powerful people uh, doing something where they've harmed a, a, you know, a member of a marginalized community. And somehow in that story, the powerful person becomes the victim. <laughs> and it's like, and, and then the marginalized people are told, like, why don't you have grace for the person who's dehumanizing you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, what? Yeah. It's like, Darvo. first of yeah. It's like, yeah. first of all, they have been having grace. They wouldn't be able to live in the society if they hadn't been having grace and giving people space to kind of be crappy to them. Right. And so it's like, then they finally reach a point where they say, you know what, we've, we've tried all the things we've brought it up all the different ways. We've said it nicely. We've said it loud. We've said it at football games. We've said it here. You know what? You guys just don't want to hear it. So now we're going to go after your job. Yeah. And then people say, well, you're not acting with grace. You should look the other way. And it's like, but whose fault is that? Yeah. Right. Like it's all kind of upside down. Um, you know, is it is it the fault of the people who've been trying to get everybody's attention that the only thing that gets anybody's attention is losing jobs and stock prices? Like, I, I don't think so. And so that's where I think that we can get really confused about what grace is. And so I see people doing that and they'll come to me and they'll say, why aren't you having grace for that person who did that horrible thing? And I'm like, why aren't you having grace for the people who've been harmed and maybe yeah. aren't expressing it in the best possible way. Right. So I, for, I agree with for, you. Yeah. For me in that situation, I am having grace actually though, because what I'm not doing, but I did used to do is when I see that person who's caused harm, I am seeing them as a whole person and I am seeing them as somebody who is redeemable and has all sorts of qualities that I don't know about and not the thing that they did. That doesn't mean they shouldn't be held accountable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think that I think being held accountable is a grace. And if if a lot of people, if you think of all these men that went down during Me Too, if they had been held accountable 20 years ago, they would have learned not to do this at a point in their career where they weren't famous and, 
weren't, you know, and then if they were just corrected at the time and held accountable, they would have had, a, had they would have had an opportunity to be different, and they wouldn't have blown up their lives down here. So, actually being held accountable is a grace. It's, you know, it's just that, you know, you, you need to hold people accountable with humanity, and so sometimes we do see things being called accountability that I say in the book that I think look a lot more like annihilation. Hmm. So if we're being honest, it's like, does the whole person's life have to be destroyed to have accountability? Yeah. Mm, you know, I've, I've been involved in the last couple of years, three years actually, in uh, pastor abuse cases. Mm. And so, and the things that have been said about, and my daughter and I wrote a book, a church called Tove, um, and the um, the things that have been said about our calling out some of these people. When we know the stories behind the scenes for years, people were working, and yes. nothing worked until it went on social media. Then all exactly. of a sudden, calling it out is somehow un inappropriate and everything. So. And lacking grace, right? It's like you're not having enough grace for them. On that very thing, there are points at which grace is not extended the way these people demand it because they have not, let's say, learned to walk into grace in a way that becomes respectful of grace itself. So that, Mm -hmm. I thought that was... To me, that's the that, the existential experience of of what you're what you're teaching in this in this. So, thank you. I'm so glad that resonated with you. Uh, one of the most vulnerable chapters in this book is about your own trauma, and you told several stories. And you don't have to enter into those stories now. But what I'd like to ask is what trauma does to discourse in the public realm. This is to me one of the most insightful. Uh, dimensions of your book. What did it do to you? And what have you learned about trauma's impact on our public discourse? Yeah, well, for me, it definitely kept me in a very black and white place looking for monsters, right? All the time, trying to find the monster, who's the monster, who's the bad guy, so I can feel good. You know, it's all unconscious. That's the thing. And so, um, and as I started to learn about trauma, after I had gotten off to social media for a while, and I got back on Twitter, and I thought, whoa, I was like, this is a lot of hurting people. (laughs) It was so obvious to me. And when I started interviewing therapists and I would say like, what do you think about the way people behave on, you know, social media? And they're like, there's a lot of unwellness. Like there's a lot of people that are traumatized. And I don't say that some people use that word unwell to be like a judgmental thing. Like, no, I mean, I I mean, there are people who have issues that they need to, to deal with. And I was one of them. And, and, and then they go and they take it out on other people and it's all, it is all unconscious. That's the thing. Like they're not aware of what they're doing. I wasn't aware of what I was doing. And, and so I think that it is a big part of the problem. And particularly because I think people who have been traumatized are drawn to this kind of discourse. And they are drawn to traumatize people generally see things even more and more black and white. And so it's why you see so many activists, right, come from um, experiences where they were traumatized and then they want to help people not be traumatized the way they were traumatized. But if they haven't dealt with that trauma and integrated that trauma then it, it does become this all or nothing paradigm. And, and so 
I think so on the one hand, people need to deal with their trauma. On the other hand, we need to have empathy and we need to recognize what's going on. So sometimes if you see somebody really acting out rather than making fun of them or retweeting it to, you know, tell them to do better or whatever, like have some empathy. Like this is a person who has been harmed and often they've told us the story about how they've been harmed, right? Like it's not. And so it helps me have more empathy for people. And I, it makes it easier not to take things on when people say things to you. Cause you just think like, wow, a healthy person just wouldn't, they wouldn't say that. Like they wouldn't interact with me that way. They would, they would tell me if they had a problem, but, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't do it like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So for me, it was very, very key because I, I just, I, I, it was another thing, kind of like the binary thinking where I just felt like this just the capacity just expand, you know, for space for other people to be different. Like I say, grace is letting people have space to not be you, which I was like in the beginning, I just sort of thought, well, if you don't think what I think and you don't think what my friends think, then obviously you're horrible, <laughs> you know? I, um, and so, yeah, but there's so much of that. There's so much. Yeah. Of that. And I mean, and around particular issues, right. You yeah. know, it wasn't about everything, but it just would be. And when people would try to help me see the grays, I, I would think, and I think there are probably people listening who would relate to this. I would think that's, that is just somebody who can't stand up for the truth. Yeah. That's just somebody who just wants to be liked. That's just somebody. See, I'm just like, I'm, you know, I'm out here saying what needs to be said and they just, all they care about is their comfort. Right. And it's like, no, actually, that's not what's happening. Sometimes that does happen, but like, that's not what was happening for the most part. It was that is that things were a little more complicated and a little more complex uh, than I was willing to see. Well, you're um, you're going to change public discourse for the people. Oh, who will, who well, will from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Now here, here's uh, I'm used to these uh, psychological and sociological categories, but this was a new one for me. Explain what you mean by motivation, attribution, asymmetry. For all its technical yeah. language, this was one of my favorite chapters. Now I've already said that about every chapter so far, but help <laughs> us understand how this works and how grace helps us out of motivation, attribution, asymmetry. Asymmetry. Yeah. yeah. So basically it's that we believe that we're good and our intentions are good and we've thought everything through and we're coming to this with the best of intentions and everybody who disagrees with us has bad intentions. They're acting in bad faith and they haven't thought about it. And, and if you approach, uh, any kind of conversation with that attitude, it's, it's not, it's not going to go very well. And, and also how can you have grace for a person who you believe is acting in bad faith and uh, you know, and who hasn't taken any time to listen to this because you're not seeing, I mean, to think about this, like you're not seeing the humanity in them. You're not seeing them as a whole person. You're seeing them as like some ideas that you don't like. Right. And so it's it it leads you to demonization, which is to me the opposite of grace, right? You you just you immediately start saying like they're just they're dumb, they don't know anything, they you know they're they're weak, they're 
lazy because they don't think about these things the way I think about it. Um, you know, or, or as many, um, surveys are showing now, people are really saying like they're evil. Yeah. They're evil. Morally inferior. Yeah. Yeah. I'm good and they're evil. And, you know, versus maybe they're problematic, but I can guarantee you you're not perfect. And I can guarantee you that you are, are, you're deaf. Most people are not as good as they think they are. That's, (laughs) you know, that, that's a pretty safe bet. So it's, so take, take some time to really develop some humility. And, and one of the things that I did to help me on this front, and it was a horrible experience. Um, I did a little audit of my public life. Uh, because a lot of people, you know, most people do things and they mess up and it's, and it's bad and people know about it, like in their families, my whole life is on the internet. (laughs) So it's like, I did it all in front of everybody. And I mean, I've done things also that aren't there, but I'm just talking in terms of like discourse and things that I look back on and I'm like, oh, that was not good, you know? And so I went through that with a fresh eye and I started looking at things and I was like, this is, some of it's really good and really thoughtful and some of it's really problematic. Um, and, and, and very unconscious, like you're really, we're not very conscious when you were writing this. And so, um, and as I did that, I was able to really develop humility after I got out of my shame spiral, um, which <laughs> makes it easier to have grace for other people because then you can go. And basically, my therapist had to say this to me. She was like, where's the grace for Kirsten? Because I kept being like, how could I have done this? I can't believe I acted this way. And and then she was like, she was doing like you're always saying everyone else is doing the best they can. She was doing the best she could with what she had. And, and now, you know, different, and this is a Maya Angelou quote, you know, she says, you did the best, you did the best with you could with what you had. And when you knew better, you did better. And, and she said, and now you're doing better. You can't hold her to the standards of today. And so once I was able to do that, then I could look at other people and be like, yeah, I know how that is. Yeah. Yeah. I know what that's like. Yeah. I know what it's like to say something that you shouldn't have said. I know what it's like to believe things that I was totally off about, you know, and, um, but, but because of this motive attribution asymmetry, you have all sorts of people. I, I see it all the time with my democratic friends who honestly, I think they think they always supported gay marriage. And I'm like, you didn't like, cause I remember. And, you know, it's sort of this idea that like, always they were always on the side of what they thought was the right thing and now how could anybody ever think differently and it's like you used to think differently like not that long ago (laughs) it's like right it's just like it's so weird and i'm like you really don't remember that like it's um we have this way of just kind of pushing out things that don't fit our narrative um and we you know and and i think that we have to get honest with ourselves about the fact that we do a lot of flawed things. We have believed things that we shouldn't believe. Um, also, I say, and people really don't like this, but because when people will say about other people, well, they did this and the other thing. And I, and I said, yeah, but if you grew up in the town they grew up in and the family they grew up in and went to the church that they go to and you never left, why wouldn't you be the same person? No, no, no. I would be totally different. It's like, why, why would you be different? Like, where does that come from? You know? And it's like, I just would, I would know better. It's like, but how would you know better if every single person you knew thought like this, you know? And, 
And it's like I, I say in the book, every white person I know thinks they would have been marching with MLK. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Like, I'm old enough. It's like, I'm old enough to remember. Yeah. You know, and it's like statistically speaking, you probably wouldn't have been. Uh, you know, and if you were, then it would just because you happened to be in a family that thought that way. But it's not like you weren't born with this inherent, like, you know, knowledge or goodness. And so, you know, so being able to look at other people and just say, again, and I do think it's worth always repeating. I'm not saying people aren't accountable for their behavior. So I am not saying that because you can look at somebody with empathy and compassion and, and, and see their, their humanity, that that doesn't mean they're not accountable. They, you know, people, people are accountable for, for what they do. And, um, it's just that when you're, you're also, when you're judging other people, I mean, why are we told to not judge other people? Is it because it's this, this immoral thing to do? I don't know. I don't know that it really is immoral. I think it's harmful to us. And, you know, I just think it's a good guideline to life. It's like, because most of the time people don't know you're judging them, right? You're not, you know, I mean, some people do it, they actually say it, but most of us just say it to our friends or in our head. And it's like, and then what happens if you're anything like me, that person's living rent free in your head for days, you know, and you're like angry at them and mad and, oh, can you believe that they did this? And I just cannot, and I should have said this and is you're suffering. And you're taking on all the toxicity and you're, you know, it's the drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. So, so grace is actually a tool for us too, like to, to not take on other people's stuff, you know? So it's, it's like, it's actually saying like, you're doing that. I see that it's not okay. I'm going to say what I have to say, but I'm not, but it doesn't belong to me. I don't have to walk around in a rage about it. Well, this is, um, I, I consider this a wonderful contribution to your book because you are taking, I would call it the, uh, the public face of grace. Uh, grace is a Christian <laughs> no virtue. No pressure. Yeah, no, but it's a, it's a Christian, it's a Christian theological virtue. It's an ethic that God is gracious to us and we are called to be gracious. But, you know, if you go into the public square and you start saying, you know, that Jesus is this and that, you know, you're going to be tuned out. But this is a way of working out the Christian virtue of grace in the public square by someone who is always in the public square and trying to work this out in ways with relationships that people will, that millions of people will be watching and seeing and reading. This to me is uh, the potential of great impact in our culture and society. And, you know, I'm, I've said this several times already. I really appreciate the book. I hope all our readers, uh, all our listeners are going to buy it and multiple copies and make sure everybody on the Deacon board is reading it and learning to talk to one another. But um, it's customary for podcasters uh, to, uh, to finish off by asking uh, those we interview, if if they have something they'd like to say to our audience. And so I want to give you that chance. Uh, I, I want to tell them what, what you've got to say is in this book, buy the book and read it. But um, I just wonder if you have any final thoughts for us. Yeah, I mean, because your audience is, 
mostly Christian, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I would just say that um, one of the things that I realized early on as somebody who spent has spent a lot of time reading the Bible, has gone to a lot of Bible studies, have done all the things, the prayer and the fasting and all of it, um, that I couldn't figure out why that wasn't get, making me a person who had grace, right? And I, I just think that this isn't taught in a practical way in churches. And, and so that's what I was trying to do in this book. And that what I, that, that's what I hoped that I did was to say, when I was sitting there going, I'm here and I want to get there. And, you know, it's the things I'm doing aren't going to get me there because they're not, they're part of it, right? They're definitely part of it, but there's all these other things that I need to understand. And one of the biggest things is I actually need to understand what grace is and what grace isn't. Mm -hmm. um, uh, because unfortunately it's been weaponized by a lot of people. And so we, we don't really understand it. And it's been used to spiritually bypass. It's been used to not contend with things and just invoked. And, and so, so we misunderstand it. So I do hope for people who read the book that they'll walk away from it having a more robust idea of, of what grace is and specifically how it can be integrated into their lives. Um, that it's not just an idea, you know, mm -hmm. that it's not just a kind of nice concept, but that it's actually something that's meant to be, I think, transformative. Well, I know it has been for me in this last week of reading your book. So I'm, I'm grateful and, and I'm hoping I'm Laura, so Laura will preach it from her pulpit. <laughs> yeah. I love this idea of making grace practical for people in their conversations and how, how I, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking, this is who Jesus is. This is who de Jesus teaches us to be. And um, I think that's really helpful. I, I've been writing down some of the things that you've been saying. And I think that idea that being held accountable can also be a form of grace, as long as we're keeping in mind the humanity mm -hmm. of people in the process. Um, and I heard you talk about empathy and humility and compassion. Um, and all of these ideas, I think just remembering that every human being is deeply loved by God, that they're all valued. And that even when we disagree, we have to remember that we're talking to somebody who is deeply valued by God. And I, I just appreciate that reminder um, that people are bigger and more important than issues. Yes. Um, even when we want to get carried away, but I think remembering um, it's not about winning. It's about caring for people well. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Kirsten. Thank I really you. really appreciate it. Thank you for all that. Yeah. Well, to all of our listeners, we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thank you so much, Kirsten. Thank you for having me. 